Hello, I'm Rich Terring. I never listen to Nerdology <laughs> because I am way too cool. But carry on listening, nerds. Hi, this is Mark, and you're listening to episode 7 of Nerdology. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Matt Barber from mattbarber.co.uk. It's a really fantastic blog. If you haven't read it yet, get on your interwebs now and start reading while you're listening to this. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hi. Did I big you up enough there? Uh, yes, yeah. Although it's, it just occurred to me that my blog's actually this is mattbarber.co.uk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but, you know, I plugged it. So it's this is mattbarber.co.uk. Make a note of that, guys. Yes, yes. Right, so we thought it would be fun to have a bit of a chat about Doctor Who, because we're both quite big Doctor Who fans. I've kind of touched on it briefly in passing on episode one with JR, because we were talking about his book, but we didn't really focus on the programme as such that much. So we figured an interesting season to talk about would be season seven which was John Pertwee's first series as the Doctor, and it was quite a groundbreaking series in many ways, and quite a departure. It's a, it's a kind of a weird, weird standalone kind of... Almost it's a reboot, but also a dead end mm. in, in Doctor Who history, I think. Um, so prior to season seven, we had the, the end of Patrick Troughton's time on the show. Yeah. I think, yeah. it was, was it Derek Sherwin was the showrunner at that point? Derek Sherwin was the producer. Mm. Um, they, they kind of chopped and changed producers in, mm. in that period. So season six from 1969 was kind of Doctor Who in crisis. Mm. Um, the scripts were, were chaotic, more chaotic than normal, I think, with scripts being cancelled, scripts mm. being rewritten. Um, they also had uh, a lead actor who wanted out and was getting tired of the role they had a really punishing schedule they had a didn't very they? punishing yeah. schedule because at that time they were still recording in sequence um, and if you've read Michael Troughton's book about his dad I haven't I haven't yet it's no. well worth a read no. um, it's it opens up Patrick Troughton's so, uh, sort of private life sure and he had kind of more than one family on the go. Yeah, he was juggling two families. Yeah, and that, I think, put an awful lot of pressure on him. And I think yeah. he kind of stayed with Doctor Who longer than perhaps he would have done just because he needed sure. financial stability. Yeah. But I think by yeah. the end, he just got to the point where he just couldn't stick the work rate for yeah. much longer. So uh, at that time, three, three years doesn't sound very long nowadays, but at that time, three years would have been the equivalent of of, I don't know, Sylvester McCoy going for about 10 seasons <laughs> yeah. or something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it all but killed William Hartnell, the mm. schedule. Mm. Um, and and he had to get wheeled out of the role. And again, Patrick Troughton, I think it was partly, partly he was getting tired, but also partly he was getting frustrated with late scripts coming in. So yeah, I think he felt, from what I've read, that the standard had slipped season five. He, I think he quite enjoyed with season six had really taken quite a drop. Yes, yeah. I can sympathise with him, mm. to be honest. Um, season, <laughs> season six has its highlights, uh, but it also has its, its low points, I think. I think there's a, re- a resurgence to War Games. Yeah. 
when I watched it originally, I didn't. I thought it was over long, mm. and it was. It is a long story. It is a long story, but I watched it again this year, on the recently released DVD. Yeah, and I really. I thought it was really good, and mm. I don't know whether I've been convinced mm. by positive. Uh, everything in Doctor Who magazine at the moment is positive, so yeah. everything's great. Um, so there's been a sort of a wasn't wasn't War Games fantastic? Mm. And I, I can't remember it being fantastic, and I watched the game. I remember reading the Target novel as a kid and really liking it. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I didn't see it, the actual TV version, for a long time. No, um, and one of my I'm down on record as not being a huge fan of the Pertwee period of the show. Right. And one of my real problems is the the amount of like six and seven parters. Yes, and this yeah. is is it ten parts? It's ten parts. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean that's long, but yeah. for me. Well, I probably probably wouldn't sit and watch it in a whole sitting, but sure. it's it's I a might good be, story. I might be wrong, but I think it came about because of a collapse of a four-parter and a six-parter. That's right. That's right. And but virtually, Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk mm. sat down and wrote an episode a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and kind of did it like that. So so. I mean, I think, I think it was it was lying in a. In a in a rubbish tip surrounded by barbed wire mm. and explosions yeah. in a script that he hadn't really had a chance to practice mm, mm. in the cold and the wet. Yeah. I, I think it's not surprising that Patrick Troughton decided against against <laughs> coming back, coming back. Um, yeah, it didn't course, sound like the most fun shooting experience. No, and of course with Patrick Troughton, it was natural to, to eject the two companions, Zoe mm. and Jamie as well. Yeah. Jamie had been a really long-running companion yeah. for two and a half seasons or the best part of three seasons um, that trio are quite fondly remembered aren't they that trio yeah well particularly Jamie and the Doctor mm. I think had become had become very a very close knit yeah a real of, double act a real double act mm. and then Zoe for that season and Victoria for the previous season mm. had kind of offset that and yeah. Zoe was she was quite a good character I mean mm. in many ways in many ways she was very modern Modern companion. Yeah. She was an expert. But in traditional 1960s <laughs> mode, she was an expert that was only an expert at certain pit points of the story. So she was an expert when they needed her to be an expert. Yes, exactly. And then she, she was a little bit... The bit in the invasion where she talks the computer into blowing up, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. I mean, if you're a computer scientist, yeah. I'd imagine that that's a little bit unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. If you're an eight-year-old child, that's fantastic. Yeah. Although, convert, oddly, conversely... Jamie is supposed to be effectively an idiot, mm. but an understandable yeah. idiot because he comes from yeah, sixteenth, seventeenth century, eighteenth <laughs> century, uh, the Battle of Culloden century, or Battle whatever of it was, seventeen yeah. forties. Um, but gradually, as a series, they kind of forget this for a moment. That's right. So he yeah, becomes quite technical. And again, in the invasion, mm. he's sort of fiddling with the radio, and yeah. uh, so so the characters were sort of malleable. Mm. Um, so they ejected these two characters. Yeah, or they invited them to leave with, yeah. with Patrick. So Charlton. it was a complete clean sweep for the start of the season. Sweep. Yeah. So it wasn't just a clean sweep on that. Obviously, there's huge changes within the BBC. Sure. I think was it the previous year they started broadcasting in colour uh, in a very limited yeah, way. Yeah, I think it was from 1967 onwards they were mm. experimenting. Um, I think even in '70 when this series went out, I think the amount of people you could pick up. Color, let alone have a color set, was relatively. Oh yeah, small. yeah. Most people would have seen season seven in black and white. Yeah. Probably quite happily. Yeah. Just watching it <laughs> in black and white. 
So it wouldn't have been until probably season nine or ten when mm. you know the color bandwagon. I think once the color te- the sales of color television started, yeah, then they they escalated. Yeah, um, he says with no authority on the subject, <laughs> on the subject at all. I go along with that. I'm just talking. Yeah, I say, I say things and they sound convincing. That's <laughs> how I get through life. Um, so so most people would have seen season seven in black and white. But the, the change from black and white to colour, it also it didn't just affect how people watched the series. It affected how, how made people it. made the series. Yeah. Suddenly you could use colour separation overlay. Yeah. Which, which Barry Lentz was a huge fan of that. He was a huge, huge fan <laughs> to the point where he colour separation overlaid a kitchen in mm. Terror of the Autons unconvincingly yeah um, he, he took his experiments quite far they were groundbreaking experiments and yes. he was really at the forefront of this technology mm. that ITV was using as well yeah um, and there was a there was a kind of a, a cold war between the BBC and the ITV because they didn't share the technology mm. so they were gradually sort of trying to outdo one another yeah and Doctor Who was obviously at the forefront of yeah. this, well, this battle yeah it was the perfect I mean, test bed wasn't it yeah I mean, it's Doctor Who and the weather forecast that you are doing news. Yeah, Michael Fish didn't really have the same sort of no. dramatic presence. No, though. and actually, Michael, actually, the weather forecast at the time would be stick on things. <laughs> yeah. That's nostalgia. <laughs> um, so, so Doctor Who was the sort of the kind of the the cauldron for this mm-hmm. to mix the metaphor for this battle to go on with colour separation overlay, but also it changed the way colour introduced introduction of colour changed the way that. The things were framed mm. and things were depicted. Uh, the choice of, of aliens, the choice of monsters. I think in the 60s they were able to perhaps mask some of the, dare I say, cheapness of the mm. set sure. because of yeah. the lighting and because of the fact yeah. that there's yeah. less lines in the in the picture that sure. you could get away with that, whereas yeah. the colour, yeah. it was there to see, wasn't it? And the, the, the difference between VT and film yeah it's much less notice- much yeah. less noticeable in so something like the invasion which is the closest relative yeah is the, is the kind of the audition piece for mm. season seven mm. uh, the invasion looks really good yeah. i mean you've still got you still got interiors done on vt exteriors done on film yeah um but going from one to the other you can still tell the difference but it's not as jarring mm. whereas most of season seven actually season seven doesn't even season seven doesn't seem to have i mean the invader uh, sorry inferno mm. is quite jarring when they go from inside to outside yeah but i mean the the first story spearhead from space yeah that's yeah. all on film famously it's all on film. and it looks fantastic it looks fantastic it does and it but that emphasizes emphasizes the kind of reboot mm. quality of the series. Wasn't it something to do with a strike or something? Like There's that a strike, do, or? strike at the BBC, hmm. so the knock-on effect being they, they didn't have any studio space, hmm. uh, so somebody had the bright idea of doing it all on film, which is actually, I might be wrong, but it's actually a slightly cheaper way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but obviously at that time, the BBC was heavily unionised, mm. so there's a constant sort of negotiation going yeah. on between... You're balancing it. Between, you're not actually making a series for the viewers, you're making a series for the people who work at the BBC. <laughs> yeah. um, that sounds very right-wing. But that's, <laughs> kind, that's kind of what was happening at the time. Yeah. So someone had the bright idea, I think it was the director, and the director was Derek Martinus, maybe it was a producer, of um, 
making the story at the BBC Training Centre yeah. of Wood Norton and doing it all on film, mm-hmm. interiors and exteriors. And it worked really well. Yeah. I mean, it makes, this, it makes the story really distinctive. Yeah. I mean, looked at, looked, at the, looked at the plot in isolation, it's actually quite a chaotic plot. Yeah. It's got lots of disparate elements. Mm. And it's probably not Robert Holmes's finest story. There's lots of memorable moments, but it's not necessarily going to stand up as the best story. No, there's lots of memorable, yeah, visual moments. But if yes. you think about the end, I mean, the end is basically <laughs> a big model octopus yeah. causing John Pertwee to gurn. Oh, God, that... Which, which, oh, which looks... In, you don't want to show... It's, it's one of the bits you don't want to show somebody who doesn't know Doctor <laughs> Who. No. But, but when you're a Doctor Who fan watching it, you're kind of cheering it on yeah. because... Because it's suddenly John Pertwee forgets that he's developing this serious <laughs> new sort of acting style. Breaks away from the hard man role. And then he just thinks, how will, <laughs> he's doing a method actor thing, how will the doctor react in mm. this? I think the doctor would gurn in this situation. <laughs> so um, so there, are, there are bits which you wouldn't, but there are also really, really powerful bits. Mm. I love the Auton design. Yeah. Much, I love the Auton design more than I... I like the autumn design in Terror of the Autumns. Yeah. I thought they'd, they'd kind of lost it a bit then, mm. which always confuses me. I can't see how you can make one story where they look fantastic yeah. and then a later story. It's the same with the Sontarans. You said Skipping yeah. Forward. Fantastic in The Time Warrior. Mm. And then you get the Sontaran experiment where they just look shoddy. Then, then the you've got the Invasion of Time. Of time where they God, look yeah. completely awful. And then even, then you've got to Two Doctors where they, they look atrocious and yeah. you have to wait until the, the Sontaran strategy yeah. before you actually get a Sontaran that mm. looks as good but I don't I still don't understand I suppose they're reusing the masks with the Sontarans so you get Kevin yeah, Lindsay maybe. but then it's Kevin Lindsay is the same actor yeah. in the Sontaran experiment it's just madness I think back then I think on the other podcast that I do that's the Blue Box podcast the rival podcast the other one yeah, yeah. the one we don't mention on you <laughs> um, I think somebody mentioned that in terms of continuity particularly when you had a change in the sort of the, the people who were making the show you didn't have quite so much in the way of you know videotapes to just go back and look at what they'd done before no. um, yeah. so it meant having to book a screening room get a roll of film out from the library a range of viewing and what have you and perhaps yeah, they didn't always have time possibly. to do that maybe I don't know Possibly. I mean, there's also an economic thing that we forget that sometimes that Doctor Who exists alongside the, the economy of 1970s Britain. Yeah. And, you know, the economy of 1970s Britain resembles a ride at Thorpe Park sometimes. You get <laughs> real highs, but then you get crushing yeah. lows. So, so... You're thinking of Underworld by any chance? We're, well, we're, we're drifting <laughs> off topic, but, yeah. but I'm thinking of Graham Williams. People blame yeah. Graham Williams for introducing sort of comedy and... And for for not quite matching the quality of Philip Hinchcliffe, but they forget that Philip Hinchcliffe virtually bankrupt yeah. Doctor Who with Tunnels of Road. Tunnels of Road Chiang. He just that was his last story, so he just threw everything. I at think it. he used most of the budget on Hay, didn't he, to cover up that Porsche? That was yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, oh, good knowledge. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm just sad. I, I read all the info text as I watch the program. No, I've, I should start reading. I've read an article about that in the magazine. Mm-hmm. It does sound better than I thought it was. That's off topic. Back onto topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so we, f- we forget that actually in that period of the 1970s, 
the budget was effectively sinking. It was staying yeah. the same, but it was effectively sinking because yeah. the economy was, inflation was, was going, going crazy through the roof. Um, and I don't quite, I'm not an expert on what was happening in, in the economy in the 1960s, but I'd imagine it's the same sort of instability hmm. between recession and depression. I think that had a depression. huge influence on the idea to make him trapped on Earth. Yes, yeah. So back with season seven, mm. um, the economy was definite, definitely shaped the season partially yeah. by confining him to Earth, but also the change in episode structure. So with Troughton and Hartnell, you had a large number of stories per year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's much more expensive than a small number of stories per year. So with season seven, you had four stories, but three of them were seven episodes long, which yeah. hadn't been done before. Mm. Um, the reason that's more economical is you can build sets yeah. and use them for seven episodes yes, rather than so you only two, effectively. Yeah. and if you look at them in in those three stories so we're talking about Doctor Who and the Silurians Ambassadors of Death and Inferno mm-hmm. you have several key sets so you normally have a big central laboratory yeah. or a war a war room or a, mm-hmm. a mission control yeah. or the drill head in the Inferno mm. and you just reuse them in different angles or scenarios yeah. and that saves money for location footage yeah. which I think there, were probably, there must have been more location footage in season 7 than there had been yeah. there had been before um, so, so it was definitely saving money on it yeah. and you also got a new cast of actors yes. who would be presumably cheaper I don't know what Pertwee's salary was compared mm. to Troughton's no, yeah, I don't know but, but you assume that an actor's salary goes up every year that they're mm. in, this, in the leading part. Yeah. So David Tennant, you'd assume his salary would have increased <laughs> yeah. quite significantly because he became the part. Yeah. Um, so with John Pertwee, John Pertwee presumably would be cheaper than, than Patrick Troughton when he starts. Um, There's quite a different dynamic in that season as well because before you'd had the sort of travelling companions, mm-hmm. whereas now because he's stranded on Earth, yeah. he ends up rather, I think, quite unwillingly under the auspices of unit. Yeah. And he's yeah. assigned a an assistant rather than necessarily um, someone he chooses to take yeah. on his travels with him. And this is really for years we we called the people that travelled with the doctor who hang around the doctor either mm. companions or assistants. Yeah. And I think this is the point when yeah. it became an assistant mm. for for certainly two, maybe three companions. Yeah. Um so yes, so Liz Shaw is brought in as as companion um, by units, and in fact the story was very much geared up. Particularly, so we're talking about Spare from Space now. Mm-hmm. Um, Pertwee isn't in the story Not for an a awful long lot, time. No. I mean, he's unconscious mm-hmm. as a as an opening story for a new Doctor. <laughs> yeah. He's he's kind of conspicuous by his absence, mm. um, and the the story really starts properly. With Liz Shaw arriving at Unit, yeah, and Unit sort of recruiting her. It's almost like they're trying to sort of set the scene for Unit, aren't they? And they're building up those yeah, characters. Yeah, yeah. So they're setting, they're basically constructing a world, which the Doctor can can inhabit for mm. the next season. So it is, it's rebooting it, but and again, again, I mean, this this kind of is a bit. I mean, I really love Spearhead from Space, mm. but if you start analysing it. It kind of starts to fall apart. That you're introducing Doctor Who 
the character of the Doctor and the concept of Doctor Who mm. from a completely different aspect, which yeah. could be interesting or it could be detrimental. Mm. Um, and if, if you're defending the series, you'd say it was interesting. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Yeah, it's an odd way of doing it, I think. It's not... It's, it doesn't follow the rules of hitting the ground running. So something like Power of the Daleks, which is Troughton's first story. Yeah, sadly uh, lost. Sadly lost, mm. uh, but available on audio. Yes. Um, Troughton's very much... I mean, he's, he's not quite the Doctor in it, but he's very much the central character. Yeah. Um, the Daleks are great in that. The, the Daleks are great, but it's a relationship between the Daleks and the Doctor. Mm. So the... The, the story that story relies on from what I I've, I've listened to it a couple of times so yeah. I'm no way an expert <laughs> what I remember is the story relies on the viewer knowing what the Daleks are like yeah. the Doctor knowing what the Daleks are like everybody else thinking the Daleks are something they're a, not your servant yeah. the humanity yeah. servant yeah. Um, and that's a really it's a kind of a really creepy concept is mm. what they repeated for um, Victory, Victory the yeah even with the old, uh, would you like a cup of tea? Like, yeah, would you yeah. like, or I am your soldier, yeah. the Daleks say, yeah. which, is, which is Mark Gatiss rip, rip, <coughs> paying homage yes. to... Um, <laughs> paying homage, yeah. To that, to that <laughs> yeah. line, yes. uh, as the David Whittaker line. Um, so the Doctor is the centre of that. And again, um, Robot, which is Tom Baker's first yeah. story, the Doctor's central to that. The Twin Dilemma... The, the, Ooh, sharp intake of breath there. <laughs> the Twin Dilemma is difficult to watch, but the Doctor's still central. Again, the Doctor yeah. isn't Doctor. The Doctor's never the Doctor in his first no, story. No, no, it's always that kind of... Apart uh, from... Apart, even, even Hartnell, who mm. you'd expect to be the Doctor in his first no. story. <laughs> yeah. They're finding their way, aren't they? They're finding his way. He's yeah. threatening to kill... He, he almost kills, murders somebody in An Unearthly Child or uh, 10,000 BC or whatever, you gum, whatever you want to call it. Five of Gum. Uh, cave of skulls mm-hmm. uh, he's almost murdering someone and it takes him a few stories to get to the kind of the, the nice friendly doctor mm. well as friendly as he comes. can yeah yeah <laughs> um, but so Spearhead from Space is almost is almost wanting to c- create a series mm. set around a paramilitary organisation yeah on earth that investigates the unknown so it's almost somebody wanting to invent uh, in Invent the X Files before the X Files, yeah. or Doom Watch before Doom Watch mm. starts. When does Doom Watch start? It's around that time. It's a similar time, isn't it? It's a similar time because they're not afraid of borrowing in inverted commas from no. from other no. established movies and absolutely what have you, um, literature, which are, which is a big thing for season seven. Mm. Uh, but but Doctor Who kind comes comes second is a sort of secondary element to it. Yeah, Doctor Who the Doctor becomes a kind of a a weird addition to a to a, a an story, about, story yeah. about an independent agency investigating aliens, mm. um, and it and actually season seven. One thing I do like about season seven is it's the story of how it becomes Doctor Who again. Yeah. It's the story about how the Doctor becomes the central figure again. So by mm. Inferno, you have a story where um, where the paramilitary organization is basically subverted. In yeah. this kind of parallel dimension, this sort of fascist mm-hmm. universe, and the Doctor's the only stable point. So the Doctor, in fact, becomes a time traveller again yeah. by the end of it. Yeah. But he's travelling sideways in yes. time to new worlds, and suddenly Inferno, which is has been has hit a sort of resurgence. I mean, it's, yeah. it's suddenly become 
become the most amazing story <laughs> of, of the early 1970s um, and is I really like it yeah um, suddenly the doctor becomes the doctor again yes and is almost ready to ready to go off on whatever Barry Letts chooses yeah to go I off. think there's certainly a degree of Barry Letts finally getting his hand on the reins towards the end of that season I think he's starting to shape it into the program he wanted to be the following year absolutely yeah I think so um, it's still not it's still not it's still relying on previous people's stories, I think. Mm. But Barry Letts, certainly with the Inferno, he directs half of it because Douglas Canfield has a, doesn't have a heart attack, but he has a heart problem yes. halfway through, collapses right. in the studio, mm. gets carted off to hospital. And Barry Letts, who just happens to be... Barry Letts basically wants to direct every story that Barry <laughs> yeah. Letts produces. Uh, he's obsessed with the idea of directing. He yeah. loves directing. Um, so Barry Letts quite happily steps in not happily obviously it's very sad yeah he had to step in but he happily steps in uh and directs the end of the stories mm-hmm. but he's still using some of the, he's still trying to match douglas canfield's direction in the first episode yeah. so it has to be consistent mm-hmm. and he's still using the same sets and the same the same script yeah so so he definitely definitely changes for season eight there's definitely a a tonal difference and a a difference in sort of types of plot and also season 8 we talk about Pertwee being earthbound but actually it doesn't take long for Pertwee to go off no in I think it's colony in space mm-hmm. he goes off and the the, the, the the time lords start using the doctor as 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 a sort of a yo-yo sort of projecting him into sort of crisis yeah crisis situations on other planets and they do this regularly mm-hmm. throughout I mean the, the Peladon stories yeah um, well, obviously, by the by, the three doctors, the Earthbound idea is is kind of over. The doctor's free to to go mm. wandering, yeah. and at that point, the Pertwee stories start showing their flaws mm. because Pertwee's doctor becomes a character that wants to spend time on Earth. He does. He's not forced to spend on yeah. time on Earth. He chooses to spend time on mm-hmm. Earth, and that's when he becomes this sort of clubbable, sort of. I'm mates with people on Earth. They need yeah. me here. I've got a home here. I've got Part a establishment. Here no reason to do that mm. so it has to be Tom Baker completely he has well, to regenerate yeah and then Tom Baker has to abandon yeah. his family at, on home and they home. always tend to go for a totally different take on the character don't they just yeah. cast someone who's just a total change of pace and direction from for, the previous person. from Tom Baker mm. yeah absolutely and it's almost comes across as cruel I always think the end of of robot and and the the speech in um i think it's pyramids of mars where he says he's got better things to do than run after the brigadier all the time mm. um so he's actually they're actually abandoning the unit stories but they don't they don't give the unit crew a big final send-off no they kind of it's obviously philip hinchcliff doesn't like the idea of unit mm. And they kind of... They're just going to go out with a whimper rather than a bang. Murder yeah. it slowly. They yeah. kind of gas it to death with with a number of sort of uninspired stories. I mean... You've got Terror of the Zygons. Terror of the Zygons I like. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Android Invasion as a unit story is mm. really... It's really depressing. I mean, it's got good bits in it, but as a unit story, it doesn't have to work. It doesn't have the Brigadier in it. No. It's got Benton, but it's got evil Benton. <laughs> and it's got Harry Sullivan, and the, wor- the worst person served by it is Harry Sullivan, who's this yeah. amazing companion. Yeah. Really kind of 
friendly. And he's just sort of forgot about it at the end. And that's his last story. Yeah, in Tom's first season, he's brilliant. Absolutely Tom, brilliant. His first season's brilliant, and it's because they, they basically completely cut out Yuna, mm. um, which was cruel, I think, mm. and it seemed cruel, but completely necessary, because the Doctor, the doctor has to be a time traveller. Mm. He can't have a home. And this is something Russell T. Davis recognised, although ironically, he set most of his first season on Earth in a sort of domestic setting yeah. but he recognised that the Doctor can't be domestic no. Chris Reckleson he's, Doctor he's got to is pe- petrified about being tied in with yeah. these domestic situations yeah. um, and David Tennant's Doctor virtually dies because he becomes tied in yeah. into these domestic situations mm. he becomes obsessed with obsessed with earth women and, <laughs> and Bernie Cribbins <laughs> yeah. uh, to the point where he just can't can't stop himself yeah. uh, travelling um, and I think Matt Smith has probably, has probably re- rediscovered this kind of slight cruelty. He thinks mm. nothing of, of leaving the ponds no. to live their life. I mean, that, that, that abandonment, that's yeah. the way he leaves them. You almost didn't think that was the last mm. pond. Mm. That, I, that didn't feel like a companion leaving story, no. even though they keep coming back. Mm. But that was kind of, had that sort of sense of cruelty, yeah. necessary cruelty that, yeah. that the 74 had. Kind. 75 season, 74, mm. the season, whatever it was, 11, 12. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So, so season seven, but see, season seven was probably the, the only true earthbound season. Yeah. Um, and, and famously, uh, Terence Dix, the script editor, was faced with a big challenge because Malcolm Hulk had told him that he was, had warned him that he was going to be limited to storylines yeah. and I think the main storylines were Mad Professor yeah. Friends Take Over the Earth mm-hmm. Aliens Invade yeah. uh, Threat From Within Threat From Within yeah. and, and so that season has to find new ways of telling Earthbound stories yeah. without relying on because effectively Alien Invasions had been had been done to death yeah. in Troughton I mean yeah. Troughton had made an art form out of yeah. what what I think I suspect only fans would call base under siege yeah. stories. I do. <laughs> uh, I do, and I really love. I really love season five. I think season five is, is, is fantastic. It's probably. I think it's fantastic, and probably would be less fantastic if we could see it all. Yeah, I think there's um, a certain degree of. Um, it builds up the legend of the stories and the fact that we can't see them. Absolutely, yeah, and the bits of. Let's talk about season five a bit. The bits of. The Ice Warriors that I've seen, yeah. I haven't been inspired by. Um, Tomb of the Cybermen, I loved when it came out. Yeah, I went off it a bit, and now I love it again. Yeah, but I'm sure I'm sure it will come and go. And I think the same is happening. It's amazing how stories come out in and out of fashion and fandom. It's like music. I don't know if you're the same, but I'll be into a particular artist, and you'll listen to a particular album, and just keep playing it and playing yeah, it and playing yeah. it, and, playing. and then you just get sick of it. Yeah, and then you absolutely. come back to it later, and you yeah. get a new appreciation for it again. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely, and also it connects with a certain point in your life as well. Yeah. So you listen to it, listen to it, listen to it mm. when you're twelve or thirteen. Yeah. yeah. You come back to it when you're twenty, and suddenly it reminds you of being twelve or thirteen. Yeah. And you get so any sort of text, any kind of cultural artifact, mm. develops this kind of sheen of a particular period. Yeah. For you personally, I think. Certainly um, for my age group, I'm sort of late thirties, so 
there is a, a very big nostalgia factor in looking back at these stories. You see, you're, you're, when were you born? 1973. 73. You're so, you're actually quite lucky. <laughs> lucky. There's a, there's a kind of a, is this, I don't know if it's an unspoken rule, but somebody said sometime that your best period of time for watching Doctor Who is when you're eight. Yeah. And so you were eight in 1980? Yeah, so, well, 88, yeah. I was eight in 1985. I was born in ah. 1977. I was eight in 1985. <laughs> 1985 is five, but it's probably mm. one of the worst times to be eight and li- love Doctor Who. Yeah. Because we've got, we've got, the great hiatus yes. around that time. We've got trial of, then we've got trial of the time. Lord, yeah. Which isn't, it, I'm sure there are defenders of trial of the time Lord out there. I like I've bits of it. I like, I like individual, individual episodes. It's got a fantastic special effects shot at the beginning. Oh, that is stunning. Which, that. which would hold up today. It's yeah. almost better than some of the special effects today. That is, There's a sense of scale in that that you don't get with CG. I, I remember watching it. I remember watching Roland Rat waiting for this to be on and I remember watching that and <laughs> that actually, dates it and I, I don't know I think it was amazing yeah and then of course it then collapses slightly mm. with um, Robert Holmes's final few stories which are kind of still still working bits yeah and Mysterious let's talk about Trial of Time Lord a bit yeah. Mysterious Planet works in bits and yeah. it looks looks quite nice Again, you've got the locations. and You've got the locations, but in, in narrative terms, you've got a story where you're constantly going back to this slightly uninspired yeah. trial room yeah. and, and kind of interrupting the drive of the story. You can imagine for a casual viewer coming in, it would be for, not yeah. the most sort of compelling. Absolutely, yeah. It would be confusing. And also, yeah. it would constantly... It's constantly... I mean, the Doctor Who stories rely on on constant movement forward. Yeah. Uh, you have to you have to try and cut out the. I mean, some rely on padding. Mm-hmm. Back to poetry again. <laughs> no, that, that, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking in my head. I'm thinking of a giant clam and Genesis of the Daleks. Oh well, yeah, say no more. <laughs> and and the fact that Genesis of the Daleks being this amazing, miraculous, greatest story ever told, but mm. but so much of it relies on a set of characters running from one dome to another through a wasteland. Yeah, and then it's almost like they run to one dome and. And they've forgotten their keys. The other day, <laughs> yeah. they run back, step in the giant clam, get through a secret door, <laughs> and, and they sort of make it. But it's still regarded as fantastic. But yeah. actually, it's regarded as fantastic by a generation of fans that grew up listening to, listening to the audio version, yeah. which cuts out a huge amount of this running back and mm-hmm. forth. It's still great, but yeah. Um, and yeah, per, per we had had padding, but actually, per the padding in Pertwee is mostly. It's mostly the stunt team called Havoc having I'm fights Planet doing, Spiders. doing somersaults. Oh, Isn't there an entire oh, yeah, episode yeah. with a chase? Yes, there's a whole, uh, <laughs> there is a whole chase. <laughs> that's more self-indulgence than planning. That's per- yeah. Pertwee saying, Barry, <laughs> you know I'm leaving in, the, <laughs> in a few episodes. Do you think I could... You think I could have a go at a hovercraft? Yeah, Terence oh, is saying, Barry, if we give him a hovercraft, maybe he'll go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe he could work back. But yeah, that was padding, yeah. But it was it was it was funny. It had a tramp. It had a hover. Oh yeah. A hover they love the tramps in the tramp. era, don't they? They love the tramps. Yeah. yeah. Yokel types. Yeah. Claws of Axos. Yeah. Pigby and Josh. Yes. Uh, and Sam Seeley as well mm-hmm. in in Spearhead, getting back to season seven. Yeah. Um, but but there was well, there was padding there. Mm. But I think 
Trial of a Time Lord, that it was just padding, padding unnecessary sort of yeah. referrals back to this, to this trial room. I've never been a fan of Mind Warp. I can't get in. I can't get into to Philip Martin's. Mm. I know that they're huge fans of Vengeance and Varus and, and Time Warp. Yeah. Uh, Mind Warp, sorry, um, but I just can't quite. I just can't quite see it. I think watching it as a kid. Uh, Perry's exit was very traumatic. Uh, yeah, it you know it was, it was a real hard. slap in the face. Yeah, like yeah. wow. Yeah. Um, and then when they kind of readdress like it at the end, it's almost like it cheapens it a bit. Yeah, they do it in a sort of a pink heart. Shape, <laughs> yeah, very nineteen eighty. Which is completely unnecessary. I blame Pip and Jane Baker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, then Terror of the Verbers, I loved when I was a child. Yeah. I thought it was a, and actually it's probably the strongest story. I think it story. stands up well story-wise compared to the I think it's the a strong story. And actually, the, the vervoids notoriously look a little bit like a lady's naughty face. <laughs> so, yeah, you could, you could say, say that. Um, but, but as a child, the spikes through the hands yeah. really freaked yeah, me out yeah. when, I was, when I was whatever age I was, nine, ten. Mm. Really freaked me out. Um, and I was freaked out as well by an unearthly foe. Um, mm. No, an unearthly foe. The ultimate foe. The ultimate foe, yeah, that's right. So, uh, episodes 13 and 14, <laughs> which you probably should call it. Um, so that's uh, that that season. But it wasn't... I think this, the concept of the season, the season was flawed. Mm. The season wasn't planned. If you're going to do a season with an umbrella narrative like that, you have to wasn't plan... Wasn't it all cobbled together at the last minute because they had a series already primed to go and then it... They had a series. They had a series. It went on hiatus, which gave them lots of time to plan, to plan the trial of the time. So they came up with the idea quite early, Mm. but they had uh, sort of stillborn concepts, and then there was the great Eric Sayward, John Nathan Turner rift, where Eric Sayward actually had the grand plan Mm. for the end, written with Robert Holmes. So they bookended the series, and it almost became like modern Doctor Who. Eric Sayward had almost Mm. sort of done a Russell T Davis on it a story and, arc and constructed yeah. a massive story arc mm. and then Robert Holmes died Eric Sabred fell out catastrophically mm. with um, threw his toys out in the pram with uh, John Nathan Turner he didn't like he didn't like Bonnie Langford coming in mm. um, I don't through, think he was alone in that to be fair but. no no Bonnie Langford not a bad actress I think she's a good actress a but completely ill-conceived character yeah. introduced in a really bad way mm. And not the most, not the most likable character, mm. a brash character, with a brash doctor. Yeah. And you'll just end up with an overdose of brashness. Mm. Well, that's the eighties all over. Isn't and it? that's the eighties all over. Yeah. So Eric Sayward left, and he took with him the conclusion. Yeah. So Pip and Jane Baker, the Wonder Team, were brought, <laughs> were brought in. I'm sure they're, they're very nice people. Yes. I, I guess I, I liked what on earth. As a sort of a, I watched What on Earth, the children's television series mm-hmm. they did, and I was thinking it's at that period where you watch things like Bugs, Crime yeah. Traveller, yeah. Strange, What on Earth. You watch all of these things, and you're thinking they could be making Doctor. Why Who. don't they make this Doctor is quite, Who? Yeah. This is quite good. Why aren't they making Doctor Who mm-hmm. for the same money? For the yeah. same money. Why are they making Bugs when they could be making Doctor Who? Bugs is all right. Um, so Pip and Jane Baker came along and wrote the final episode based on you know, loose strands. And it kind of, they don't, they do, they don't do a bad job. Mm. Actually, they bring back the master. Yeah. It's not a bad, not a bad story. But you're not, you're not, 
I'm not going to be talked around. It's still, <laughs> it's still just not, not too bad. It's considering flawed. It's, it's flawed. It's massively flawed. Mm. Season seven, however, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of season... I think I'm a big fan of season seven. And one of the reasons I'm a big fan is it, it seems to be more consistent than, than any other season before. Mm. Which is kind of unfair, possibly, but bear with me. <laughs> because there's only four stories, yeah. it can get monotonous. There, there is a risk. There is an yeah. argument that it yeah. could be monotonous. Yeah. It could be uh, the same lab revolving yeah. in the cyclotron yeah. room. Everything's happening around the cyclotron room. But they kind of, with those seven-part stories, I think they cracked, they cracked it slightly by, by introducing two... Each, each story has two plots. Yeah. So you have the plague, the plague plot and the Silurian plot in the Silurians. Yeah. yeah. Each, both of which are really fantastic. Yeah. I think the Silurians. I've got a soft spot for the Silurians. Mm. I shouldn't like it because it is, it is, virtually sort of padding incarnate. It yeah. is. It is kind of padding, but for some reason I can watch it. I sort of measure stories by, if I'm watching a story and I start, you know, getting distracted, I start tweeting or, I, I want yeah. to stop it and come back to it. Then, then it's not it's not so good. Mm-hmm. But the Silurians, I can watch all the way through yeah. without without a break. Inferno, mm-hmm. I can do the same. So Inferno, you have the Drill Primords yeah. story, and you've got the Fascist Earth story, mm-hmm. and they they kind of bring them together. Yes, it's slightly flawed, but it works. Ambassadors of Death, you can probably tell me a pair of two two blocks because you've well, seen I, it. I only recently. watched it very recently. Yes. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. As, yeah. A, as a Pertwee sceptic, uh, I found it a really enjoyable story to watch. And it's considered, I mean, depending on who, who you talk to, it's either the strongest story. Terence Dix thinks it's the strongest story yeah. of the season. Everybody else thinks it's the weakest story. It really divides opinion. There's no one who's kind of ambivalent no. about it. It's a no. real Marmite story. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I'm slightly ambivalent about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's the strongest story of the season. Yeah. But actually, I, I think it's... It stands it's up pretty well. It stands up pretty well. And it's, pretty, it's consistent as well. It does borrow quite heavily from Quatermass. Well, look, you've mentioned the Q word. So let's, <laughs> yeah. so let's talk about the Quatermass because the whole of season seven borrows. Mm. Spearhead from Space starts virtually with a, uh, a remount of, this, of the shot of, I think it's Quatermass 2, mm. or even Quatermass 1, actually, the, the first TV version of it has this kind of, opens with this kind of radar control room, yeah. watching things come to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, and I've watched, I've watched it quite recently, the surviving episodes of Qua- the Quatermass Experiment. Yeah. And I think it's the Quatermass Experiment, not Quatermass 2. And it has almost the same, from memory, this is almost the same kind of slightly sweaty controller. Yeah. Saying, they, they can't, kind of they beat can't, beat. Beat, can they? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's landing, how can that happen? Um, and then the concept of Spearhead from Space is Quatermass 2. So mm-hmm. it's, it's meteorites from Earth take over factories. Mm-hmm. So you get, you get factories on Earth, sinister factories on Earth, yeah. sort of taking over key people. Yeah. You get committee meetings with, with people. Real kind of invasion of the body snatchers kind of stuff. Invasion of the body snatchers. Um, and that's, so that's Spearhead. Mm. Then you've got Silurians almost has elements of Quatermass and the Pits mm. in it. So a buried, ancient, buried, alien, yeah. evil, people going mad. Yeah. So the whole, the whole idea about 
about people scrawling on on the walls and people regressing to a kind Mm. of a a primal state. That is Quatermass in the pit. Um, Ambassadors of Death have, as again, is is the Quatermass experiment virtually remade in parts. So so space-suited aliens, there's a shot, a famous shot of them walking walking through this, uh, reflected in the sun. Yeah. There's a really good evocative sort of film mm. shot of mm. the, the astronauts, and that is the Quatermass experiment. Yeah. Probably the movie more than more yeah. than the TV series this time. I think um, it was Hammer that made the movie, was it? Hammer made, yeah, yeah Hammer did, did the remakes of all the Quatermass movies. Mm. Um, and I love, I love Quatermass. I think even Quatermass, the weakest Quatermass 2. Did you see the, um, the live one they did with... David Tennant. I did, yeah, yeah. And I thought it was it was good. I thought the ending was a bit flawed. They went for a kind of a a kind of a sort of Kate Bush video. <laughs> so so the original Quatermass ended with uh, so, somebody's hand in a rubber glove pretending to be a monster <laughs> taking over St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. And I kind of quite like that idea. Yeah. That that kind of I can see kind why fifties B movie. I can see why they'd have to resist doing that for yeah. a live version done now. But it was done as a kind of a, as, as a kind of a, a strange sort of spectral, I only saw it once, strange sort of spectral ending, mm. fading to white, this kind right. of weird sort of, weird kind of unreal ending. Mm. So it turned it sort of slightly symbolic rather than, rather Literal, than yeah. alien taking over St. Paul's Cathedral, mm. which, which is fine. Um, and I did think that the strength of it was mostly the fear you felt for the actors yeah. doing something live. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love the idea of live television and mm. these experiments with live television. I wonder if they should do it. They, they can't do it for Doctor Who, but if they should do it for Doctor Who, <laughs> they can't do it for Doctor Who. But Maybe if it was like a two-hander or something like that. If it was got. a two-hander, but you'd ne- it never works with modern Doctor Who. Mm. You can't have a small story mm. anymore. You can't have uh, an... Edge of, edge of destruction would have worked as it well, virtually was back then, but it would have worked as a mm. live episode. Yeah. But you could do a, an edge of destruction today, I think. Mm-hmm. Closest being probably uh, the Doctor's wife. Yeah. Could yeah. have been done as as live, Pretty without much, yeah. special effects. Yeah. Um, as a sort of streamlined version. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so back back with Quatermass. Mm. Um, so season heaven. Seven relies heavily on Quatermass, mm. but as do a lot of season eight as well. Um, Claws of Axos, the demons. Yeah, the demons is a particular. I particularly like the demons. The demons is it's very evocative. The demons is another story that has completely nosedived in this strange collective consciousness mm. of the fandom. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's sort of may sort of key fans out there. I've watched it for a long time, but I remember enjoying it as a kid. I remember, I have a particular fondness for the demons because I grew up about 20 minutes away from Oldbourne where they filmed oh, it. Oh, right, yeah. And a mate and I used to, used to look for Doctor Who locations. Yeah. And we used to travel around. And Oldbourne was the first. And Oldbourne is a weird place where you go it and it's, I, it's absolutely identical mm-hmm. to, you drive into the village and How suddenly there's the yeah. church, there's the village green. Mm-hmm. And then... The amazing thing is you walk up a path half a mile and yeah. you get to the barrows that they used. Oh, so really? normally these normally these stories are shot, the barrows are yeah. normally sort of 40 miles location, away. Yeah. But in this situation, the barrows are actually closer to the village green than they are in the actual store. Oh, wow. 
So you can, it's almost like, Oldbourne is almost like the Doctor Who theme park mm. that we, we don't have. It's almost, you can, it's identical to how you saw it. It's, it's got the pub still there, <laughs> which does nice food. It's got the church. It's got the long barrows, which is a nice walk away. Yeah. Um, so, so my mate and I in the sort of overexcited way, we were virtually <laughs> skipping up this pass going, oh my God. And we found the long barrows by accident as well. We went up the pass thinking, this looks like a likely path. I wonder mm-hmm. what's up here. And then we suddenly, suddenly found ourselves surrounded by these barrows thinking, this looks a, a bit familiar. Mm. Oh my God. This is <laughs> so, so that's kind of shaped how, how I feel about yeah. the demons. This, yeah. is, this is one that we were talking about earlier about how stories, stories connect with your past. So you see a story yes. when, you're, when you're 12 yeah. or 8. Mm. And then you can go off it, but then you watch it again later on in life. And it reminds you of being 12 or 8. Yeah. The demons happened in reverse. Mm. So I never saw the demons originally. No. Um, but I went to see where it was filmed mm-hmm. and so watching the demons reminds me of something yeah, that's happened in my that, life yeah. it takes me back to this time when we yeah. used to drive around the, the south of <laughs> England looking for these looking for these locations and also I think for someone who's perhaps more used to New Who and is trying to explore the classic series they may not necessarily look at something like the demons or you know, Earthshock or whatever mm. with quite the same affection that we might no, have yeah, watched yeah. it for the first time. Yeah, around. I think I think you have to. I mean, it's almost it almost becomes like archaeology now mm. for for some some fans. And I I'm I don't know if I'm guilty or if I'm if I'm part of this. I suspect <laughs> guilty that you look on old stories, particularly with DVDs coming out, yeah. um, and you look on old stories as almost like artifacts yeah. rather than things to be enjoyed. Mm. Uh, so when the Crotons come out, which we discussed earlier, yeah. as being as being probably not a story that I mm. haven't managed to get through entirely, when the Crotons comes out, I will buy it and I will watch it yeah. because because of my the academic side of my brain sees it as being an important part of mm. season season uh, six, yeah. and, and you have to watch it to appreciate the development of Robert Holmes. Um, whether I'll enjoy it or not, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but I'll watch the special features. In some, some, yeah. some of these DVDs, I prefer the special features to the yeah. stories themselves. I was just going to say that quite often, if it's one I know very well, the first mm. thing I do is go straight into the special features. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And also, it's interesting with the, this is off topic again, but it's interesting with the DVDs, you also learn with the commentaries who's best at doing commentaries. Yeah. If you've got any 80s DVDs with Janet Fielding and yeah. Peter Davison, mm. and actually Matthew Waterhouse, yeah, you know that the commentaries are going to be really fantastic. They're really, they're really cynical and they're really yeah. negative, and they don't. He gets a bit of a ribbing from those two, doesn't he, Matt Waterhouse? He d- he does, but but he kind of he kind of takes, takes it out it on of the himself chin, as yeah. well. I think um, he has to really, doesn't he? Which which makes me makes me like him. I want to get his book actually at some point. Yeah, it's um, written in third person, isn't it? It's written it's a in bit third odd. person. That which, strikes me as strange. It's strange, but everything. It's it's almost apt. It's almost like he's recognised that he's got this this kind of perception in fandom and maybe in in the general public that nobody will remember in the general public, but a perception in fandom of him being slightly, slightly odd yeah. and slightly sort of, you know, the the stories are all Tom Baker. Yeah. Tom Baker is rude to him, mm. or the other the other actors don't like him, or he he gets really upset at being killed off in the end. <laughs> yeah. And he's recognised this. He's picked up on this and. It's to his credit that he's he's trying to sort of he's trying to kind of like you know mm. take it out of himself. I think 
Um, and and the commentaries help that. Yeah. I think I think he. I watched the Kinder commentary, which and I, I like Kinder. Yeah. But it's quite a dry story. I I think I appreciate it more than love it. I think yeah. I think it's a really strong, intelligent story. But it's it doesn't have. I don't know, it doesn't have autons in it. I forget <laughs> it the actor's name now. The guy who plays Hindle is, I think he's brilliant. He is, he's fantastic. Simon Rouse. That's the one. Oh, I just did the, yeah. I did the Toby Haylock. <laughs> yeah. Simon Rouse played Hindle. <laughs> uh, and he's fantastic when he goes potty. Yeah. And builds his... That's, he really goes for it. It's, he really goes for it. Yeah. And also um, Richard Todd yes. is really good as well. Who Matthew Waterhouse who Matthew rather Waterhouse. famously gave acting advice to. Yeah, gave acting advice to. And for years... Fandoms used this as a as a kind of wasn't Matthew Waterhouse embarrassing, <laughs> but actually Matthew Waterhouse in the commentary. Yeah, did he quite say he was trying to it. have a bit of fun and have a joke? With it. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't deny doing it, mm. and and it's quite clear that the other actors are kind of like taking yeah, the piss. Yeah, but but that's kind of a good thing because you <laughs> get the impression. I mean, this is what this is what colleagues should be like. They yes, should they exactly. should feel free to yeah. to rib other other people. Mm. Um, and I think I think this is what these '80s commentaries do. Yeah. Um, the the difficult commentaries to listen listen to are some ones with with Tom Baker in it. Tom is either very entertaining and very funny, yeah. or depending on his mood when he's in the studio doing the recording, he can mm. be very. Well, it's um, I've said this before. I think on another podcast, it's almost like he's phoning it in. It's yeah. Just not yeah. Really and the, the danger is he doesn't remember. Understand? No, he I mean, doesn't fair remember enough. You know, it's you know forty odd years. Yeah, um, and possibly with the seventies, the Pertwee ones as well. Mm. You end up with um, either people that have read up on the stories, so they've yeah. read, which is obvious when they have read up on mm. it, so they can kind of repeat the anecdotes yeah. that we've kind of heard to death the eye patch yeah. anecdote, which yeah. I don't think I probably don't do on the, the DVD of the Inferno, but. <laughs> But there are certain anecdotes that they can repeat. Yeah. Um, or they just describe what's happening on screen and yeah. say, this holds up quite well. Yeah. And, and you kind of want somebody sardonic or slightly catty like Janet Fielding. Yeah. Even, oh, though, well. even though I know it's been cr- criticised for being overly negative, mm. but it's, negativity can be entertaining, I think. In its own way, yeah. And she's never, she's never kind of cruel about people like John Nathan Turner. No. Um, she can be sort of mocking, but mm. I don't. I think there's a, a fine line between mocking and cruel, or yeah. quite a, a broad line between mocking and cruel. I quite enjoy it when they kind of go on tangents and they just start. So they'll start reminiscing about something that happened on the set, and then they'll just yeah you know, start riffing on a totally different. Track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Janet Fielding's fun. fantastic for talking about how television is made. Mm. She's, she's got quite a. She's got quite an interesting set of opinions on. On she everything. talks she talks about <laughs> everything, but she also talks about sort of camera setups. Yeah, and the idea of because the eighties Doctor Who is very much well, television at that time was sort of three cameras yeah. pointing at actors. Actors had to stand in a horseshoe mm-hmm. and react to the, yeah. have conversations in a horseshoe, which is unnatural. Yeah, um, and you also lose the sort of dynamic nature of it being mm-hmm. on three cameras, so it's done as a play. Yeah, and she's very interesting in in sort of dissecting that. Yeah, and and analysing that within the stories she's talking about. She's not very positive about the stories she's in, but she's no. not very positive about her own performance in it. I've so seen one or two where she seems very obsessed about her hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but normally you get Peter Davison sort of... 
I like Dave, him a lot on those. I think he's very good yeah. because he also he also he also mocks the other people doing the commentary. Yeah. And mocks himself as yeah. well. Um, I mean, he was famously on on a documentary once where he described everything as crap. I think there's a <laughs> there's an interview of him walking around um, Black Black Park where the visitation is filmed, yeah. wearing sunglasses, and just everything is is crap. It was in his sort of withdrawing from Doctor Who face yeah. slightly. Um, I think they all go through it, don't they? They all they go have through, to. I yeah, think. they have to go through it. And apart from Sylvester McCoy, he's unrelentingly cheerful about, <laughs> about things. Um, so so yeah, that was digressing. But but season seven, how did we get there from season seven? <laughs> I'm not sure, but it's yeah, entertaining. It yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, so ambassadors, I enjoyed it. I really liked it. Ambassadors is good. You watched it on video, didn't? You? Or I had a sort of, yeah. Sort somebody had video. a sort of VHS copy they transferred off to DVD, it's which they lent me. And entirely legally, I'm sure. Entirely legally, of I'm course. Sure. Yes, for, for yes. For, for, for purely for home viewing purposes. But that means that you watched some of the episodes in black and white and yeah. some in colour. Yeah. How did you feel about the black and white episodes? Because I've got an I've got an opinion. It's a leading question. I've got an opinion um, about it. I well, I I love. Early cinema, I like silent cinema, so yeah. black and white is no big deal for me at all. Okay. Um, okay. Obviously, it's a bit of a, a sort of fairly jarring switch from colour sure. to black and white, yeah. but it doesn't really phase me. I, I watched, I watched it, and I felt the same with um, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and uh, particularly with Mind of Evil. Have you seen mm. Mind of Evil? No. Mind of Evil is another story where a lot of the colour is colour episodes have lost, are lost. Mm. And I think it looks fantastic in black and white. I yeah. think black and white covers up... We were talking about the invasion looking quite good because mm. black and white covers up the transition between yeah. BT and film. Um, and it also, as you say, it not not silent cinema so much, but, but 1950s, 40s, 50s film noir. And this has been over, overstated a little bit. Mm. But things like Mind of Evil and, and Ambassadors of Death, yeah. black and white gives us a gives it the quality and makes it seem more serious yeah, than it actually I'd is. Agree. I'd agree. So it seems where the doctor's going up in a in a in a rocket <laughs> yeah. could look could be ridiculous and probably is a little mm. bit ridiculous. But in black and white it actually increases yeah. the tension. Gives it a bit of gravitas. It gives it dark shades of darkness and yeah. light. Um, and it and it also refers back to these to these nineteen fifties episodes. Yeah. And I think that's a that's an important thing about season seven in general. Is it's unlike what what you had before were threats from from outer space. Mm. So the the Mac Hulk thing of you're going to have to do alien invasions yeah. actually doesn't play out in season seven. That that's what you get in Troughton. You get threats from outer space. Yeah. The invasion is yeah. the invasion from outer space. Mm-hmm. What season seven does is it's it gives you a set of scenarios where the threat comes from within, yeah. from inside. So you've got um, a sequence of stories where, so Spearhead from Space, you have uh, people in authority being taken over. Yeah. And you've got Major Scobie, who's, mm-hmm. um, who's a sort of a military figure, yeah. being taken over. So the threat is always seems to be slightly internal. In uh, Doctor and the Silurians, again, the threat isn't necessarily the Silurians. The whole story idea is the threat is is the human reaction to the Silurians. Yeah. The threat is... The, the politics, mad, almost. Yeah, yeah. The, the misguided scientist, the mad scientific administrator, yeah. and the mad, the mad uh, security guy yeah. um, 
his name escapes me. And they're, they're the kind of the, the trio, they're the real cause of the threat mm. story. Yeah. And again, Ambassadors of Death, you've got Carrington. The whole mm. story is based around, I don't want to do spoiler, it's dangerous doing spoilers, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so the, the um, alien ambassadors turn out not to be no. malevolent. They no. turn out to be just trying to make friends, but yeah. every time they, they shake hands with somebody, <laughs> they kill them because they're highly radioactive. Um, and Carrington has had a previous encounter with them. Yeah. Um, and is is really sort of xenophobic, yeah. so he's really against against the sort of idea of Martians, mm-hmm. and he's been turned mad by this. Yeah. So he's he's kind of gone a little crazy. So the threat comes from him, mm-hmm. um, and again, Inferno, the threat comes entirely from from within from within yeah. the planets. So we're not talking about aliens anymore. Yeah. We're talking about I don't know, I guess the idea of prime wards, I guess the idea is the humans are regressing to an earlier state of evolution yeah. that never really existed. Yeah. Where well, they looked a bit like dogs. Yeah, like a missing link. Yeah. yeah. But the other subplot is um, this fascist state. So it's yeah. saying this is what could have happened, this yeah. is what the human race could be like if it followed the path of, of unit in what we... It's almost like the final warning concluding for, yeah. for season seven. If humans carry on being like this, this, this is, is what society happen, yeah. is going to end up like. So if, if unit blows up any more Silurians, yeah. or if Carrington actually takes control, or if mm. if uh, if the Autons are successful, I mean the Autons are an external force, yeah. but the threat is still yeah. is still this kind of the subtext of of factories and uh, and kind of replica replication of of sort of industrial replication. Yeah. And also, sort of the small-minded military idea. I think that's also the start of something which I think they follow up on quite strongly. Uh, the whole environmental sure. storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you've got the sort of manufacturing. You know, the mm-hmm. sort of filling the world with plastic. Yeah. Uh, you've got your inferno where we're sort of drilling too far. And yeah. Potentially yeah. causing issues. Sure. And then later you come to things like the Green Death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're we're thinking about. Basically, it's a sort of a Malcolm Hulk, yeah, and it's also it's also a left wing a left wing thing. So so Doctor Who swings very much, very much in away from the right wing to the yeah. left wing, mainly based around the writers. We've got a, mm-hmm. a liberal producer, yeah, who's who's into transcendental metaphysics. He's into the Tibetans yes. and Zen Buddhism. We've got uh, a script editor who who's only who's only kind of. A liberal ideas are to do with female companions and how they <laughs> need to be screamers, and then you've got his mates who are who are writers. So yeah. Robert Slocum, mm-hmm. um, and and Mac Hulk in particular yeah. is famously a, a communist yes. writer with a, a real really progressive idea about environmentalism. Mm. So so from Mac Hulk, Mac Hulk we get we get Doctor Who and the Silurians, yeah. which hasn't got an environmental theme, but it does have does have this kind of this kind of natural environment, this kind of idea of a golden age, yes. I think. Um, and then you've got Invasion of the Dinosaurs and the Green Death, both yeah. of which do have an environmental subtext. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, Doctor Who becomes a lot more politically minded, I think. Mm. Um, and this is one of the things that we were talking about before the podcast started, was how I, I naturally, one of my natural tendencies is to try and argue against preconceptions. Yeah. Uh, if anybody's got a preconception, even if it's you know left is right or, <laughs> or left is left and right is right, I try to argue against it. <laughs> there are two preconceptions about the per we 
era. Yeah. The first is a Verity Lambert thing, mm. which Verity Lambert wasn't so keen on Pertwee because she felt that he became too too tied in with authority mm. and authority figures. Yeah. Um, and he became a, what we'd call a clubable figure. He became he became somebody who would go down to a London club with Tubby Rowlands. And to, to some extent, this an is, this is played, an establishment figure, that's yeah. the word. And this is played out, certainly, in certain stories. Mm. But in season seven, I would suggest that, that he absolutely isn't this. He's, he's an outsider who's come in. Yeah. And all the threats, they're not just coming from within. They're not just coming from, from humans. They're coming from humans of authority. Yeah. So Scobie, uh, Carrington, uh, Stallman, they're mm. all kind of government... Scientists, yeah. administrators, officials. Yeah. Unit is the only real sort of piece of authority that the doctor. They have ties a lot of bureaucrats with. in that era of the show as well. Don't they, they have a lot of bureaucrats, and they're mostly sort of malevolent, mm. or they're mostly. I mean, yeah, the sea devils. Yes. Uh, Claws of Axos. There's kind of overfed, overfed politicians. Yeah. So in in many ways, a lot of Pertwee's stories are anti-authority, more anti-authority than than a lot of. Uh, Troughton and, uh, and Hartnell stories mm. and Hartnell became quite an authority I mean he was sort of an authoritarian yes. figure with a, with a small a um, and in war, the war machines which I haven't seen a great deal of but he's, he's quite close with, with the authorities on earth mm. I think um, and also in his treatment of history there's a kind of a this is where it gets a little bit broader yeah. But his his protection of the history of Earth mm-hmm. is an example of his his conservatism yeah. with a small C. He's yeah. very conservative about about I mean the Aztecs you can't change history, mm. not one yeah. line. His desire to get off the planet when he's stuck with Marco Polo. All these historical stories are very much conservative yeah. in, in Hartnell. In Pertwee, you only get one historical story, which is um uh, the time, time warrior. warrior. Yeah. And that's very a very liberal. It's very liberal with with history. It's not history as we know it. It's a it's a kind of a, a medieval play park history. Yeah. It's it's Robert Holmes doing a history story he wants to write yeah. rather than being forced by Terence Dix to do a straight straight historical. So Robert Holmes invents this new form mm. of history, which is genre history. You got the kind of pseudo historical, haven't we, you? Yeah, fans would call it. I yeah. I, it's easy to call it pseudo historical. I think. But it's also the kind of histor- historical that we we see nowadays. Mm. So this kind of this kind of tying Agatha Christie. What yeah. will Agatha Christie be doing? She must be in a murder mystery. Celebrity historical. Celebrity historicals. Yeah. Yeah. What would what would Dickens be doing? Well, he must be with ghosts. So he yeah. must have ghosts in yeah. this story. Uh, so it's it's kind of tying tying an historical event in with a piece of fiction yeah. relating to that historical event mm-hmm. and seeing what happens. Yeah. Um, but Hartnell didn't do that, so he's very much, very much conservative, authority figure, yeah. or the authority of the of history, the historian. I also think that has a lot to do with the, the the whole conception of the program, because initially it was designed to be um, almost like an educational program. Yeah, yeah, it had a Rethian, uh, yeah. Rethian quality to yeah. to entertain, but also to educate. Yeah, uh, and Sidney Newman's Sidney Newman wanted. Wanted particularly to avoid sort of too many aliens because yeah. he wanted it to be an educative yeah. thing. Mm. But it's still educating children 
with the kind of the 1940s, 50s historical yeah. textbooks, mark yeah. over great figures of history, mm-hmm. kind of uh, middle-class middle British Aztecs <laughs> yeah. fighting on the soundstage. Um, so so that's, my argue, that's my argument with season seven is, mm-hmm. actually, ironically, it, it is it doesn't play out into what Verity Lambert would suggest. So mm-hmm. it's not the Doctor is an authority figure. He's actually working against authority. Mm-hmm. And his reaction to unit is very much a kind of, initially at least, he's, he's very sort of, very sort of tentative. He refuses mm-hmm. to get paid. He's quite clear that he's, he's uh, developing the TARDIS yeah. so he can get off. He just wants game. to get away. He just wants to get away. Um, and Liz Shaw... The development of Liz Shaw is almost part of this. Mm. Part of this, I think, because Liz Shaw becomes more like a conventional companion. Mm-hmm. So she abandons the idea that she's the scientist. She is the scientific yeah. advisor of yeah. the unit, um, and it's criticised that she's ab- she abandons this by the end, and she just becomes a companion rather than an assistant. Yeah. But this is part of. I mean, the Doctor is the strong figure. She, he is the strong, the strong anti-authority yeah. figure. So that's a natural progression for her character to make. And she's very much a... She's on more of a level playing field as a companion to the Doctor, whereas she, I think a lot of the yeah. previous ones have been almost like sort of junior yeah. TARDIS team members. Yeah, and in some ways some ways that works. Mm. Although she does become a junior member at times, at convenient moments. Oh, yeah. Because that's what a companion's that's there time, to do. I that's suppose, the Terrence Dicks. A companion is there to scream... But do you think that sort of laid the foundations for, well, maybe not for the next companion, but for like Sarah Jane Smith when they introduced her? And Sarah Jane Smith and also Romana, and yeah. to a lesser extent, I mean, Nyssa, mm. um, and even Ace as well. But also the, the more recent companions, Martha Jones, has very much a list sure about her. Yeah. Um, Donna doesn't. Um, no, but that's part of the fun of that character, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it chops and changes, mm. I think. And I think you need that change as well, because it yes, can get a bit yeah. stayed otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite glad that the ponds are going, mm. in, in a way, um, partly because my wife doesn't like them. <laughs> and my, lo- my wife has finally started liking Doctor Who, but she, likes, she liked Rose Tyler and liked yeah. David Tennant, mm-hmm. and she hasn't really been convinced by Matt Smith yet despite the fact I tell her that it's really fantastic. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, that doesn't work anymore. I told her that... Seems like you're not the only contrarian. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know. But I think her problem is is uh, Karen Gillan, unfortunately, mm. who I don't, I don't mind. I quite like. I, I'm going to get into trouble <laughs> if I actually give an opinion. I, I, like I think her. I like I Karen Gillan, but I'm not necessarily such a fan of Amy Pond. No, I think you can hear, hear Stephen Moffat's voice through Amy Pond a bit too much mm. and sometimes Stephen Moffat's voice when it becomes excitable can yeah. become very Scottish <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm quite glad to see change I quite like the change mm. um, but Liz Shaw Liz Shaw was a strong companion yeah. um, and she was very well played as well with what she had to deal with I mean yeah. she was underused but every companion at that time was underused mm. I think um, and she le- she left. I mean, the, it's always been sort of the fan alleged that she was was sacked. But she kind of quit before she could be sacked because she got pregnant. Yeah. So there was a kind of a mutual mutual parting of the ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then Joe Grant came along, and Joe Grant is is probably 
more classically a strong companion. I think they had a real chemistry, the Sir Doctor and Joe Grant. Yeah. Which and, possibly didn't and, quite come no, across with. And John Pertwee relies on chemistry, I think, because John Pertwee plays it very naturalistically. Mm. And mm. he plays it as John Pertwee. Against yeah. all expectations, you were expecting John Pertwee to play it comedically. And I yeah. think even John Pertwee expected himself to play it comedically. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as he starts filming, you just think, how am I going to play it? I play it as myself. Yeah. And it, I think it works. I mean... I, I think it's the most James Bond Doctor who ever got. The most... the most, Yeah, possibly. The most Jason King. Yeah. Um, but in some ways you needed that. I mean, he, he, he develops a distinctive Doctor. Mm. You can't recreate what Troughton's done. I love Patrick Trout and I think he's fantastic, but it has to be said that the, the viewing figures were really dropping off. Yeah, the viewing figures were dropping off. So, so the other thing about season seven is... It was done as a test, as a tester. They were on the verge of cancelling, but they didn't have anything to replace Doctor Who with. Mm. They asked Barry Letts, "What would you replace Doctor Who with?" And yeah. he couldn't think of anything, so they they replaced it with Doctor Who, a <laughs> yeah. new Doctor Who. Yeah. So if season seven hadn't have been successful, if Pertwee hadn't have been successful, that would have been it. That would have been it, mm. and there would have been no Doctor Who. There would have been no, probably no Doctor Who fans, because fandom really started with Pertwee. Yeah. Um, there would have been, you know, probably no Doctor Who videos, in fact, mm-hmm. because in the 70s, so many of these series were trashed. Yeah. Nobody understood the value of it. No. Uh, Saint Ian Levine, I cut that, Ian Levine <laughs> rescued, rescued in, the, in, in, these, in this golden period, rescued the Daleks from the skip. Yeah. He fought, he fought back people trying to destroy these tapes. He does get a lot of stick in the world of fandom, but I think at his heart, I think he's a he's a fan like us, and he's I think fa- he just wants. Like he's a fan like us, and he all credit to him. Mm. Without him, we wouldn't be seeing a lot of yeah a lot of what we saw. He was a fan. He was a powerful fan in the nineteen eighties mm. when Doctor Who needed a powerful, yeah, rich, effectively rich fan yeah. with with influence. He in, spent a lot of his own money on. Um, he's done. Uh, I don't know if it's ever going to see the light of day, but there's like a, an animated version of Sharda. Yeah, I saw that on I saw that on Twitter, mm. um, and it, it would be interesting to see. It. I know that J.R. Southall's seen it, yes, and was very complimentary about it. Mm. Um, off topic, Sharda Sharda's an odd story that I can't quite decide. I've seen the video of it, mm. and I don't know whether the video does it justice. But it's not yeah. the strongest story ever told. From what I saw, I love Douglas Adams. I think he's a fantastic writer, but I yeah. don't know if his Doctor Who stories were his best work. I think no. City of Death for me is fantastic. City of Death's story. fantastic. Mm. Pirate Plants, good in bits. Mm. It's not the, it's not the strongest story, but you know it's fun. It, it's a it's a romp. Yeah. Um, yeah. The captain I find very grating. Yeah. I have to say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But Tom Baker actually actually comes out a little bit. Not comes out. <laughs> not comes out in the modern sense but his, his acting he actually recaptures some of his earlier seriousness yes. in yeah. that there are moments in that where I suddenly yeah. start to think Tom Baker's actually acting as the doctor he's actually yes. getting his teeth into that yeah. whereas some of I mean the 1980 season the first Jonathan Turner se- mm. season you get the impression Tom Baker's getting a bit bored yes. which actually makes the season a little bit because he's subdued yeah He's a little he's very bit brooding and brooding, morbid, and then he regenerates. So that yeah. kind of builds the season up to yeah. a particular particular point. 
but you're kind of watching it thinking this is the end of Tom Baker mm. wasn't he great in I mean, uh, he's my Ark, doctor so. Ark in Space yeah uh, Pyramids of Mars is my one of my favourites I really love mm. Pyramid, even though season uh, episode 4 is basically it's basically a game of hopscotch <laughs> yeah. I still love Pyramids but again I grew up again that's connected to my childhood I grew yeah. up oddly about 20 minutes a game from uh, Stargroves oh right and you can kind of wander still wander around Stargroves was that Mick Jagger's house that was Mick Jagger's house yeah Yeah. where his mum was living Mm. and you can still just sort of wander around the back of it and see the woodland yeah and obviously the landscape the landscape all of the 1970s this is why I love 1970s Doctor Who Mm. all of those episodes were, were produced along the corridor of the motorway yeah. as it goes out of London yeah. so they could get to it easily. Mm-hmm. So Hampshire, Wiltshire, Berkshire, Oxfordshire, these are all sort of rich scenes of locations from yeah. 1970s Doctor Who and all the landscape I grew up in, mm-hmm. I can see in, I've been to where they filmed uh, Android Invasion so I really like, yeah. I really like the filmed bit in Android mm-hmm. Invasion because I recognise, I recognise the countryside, yeah. the demons, pyramids of Mars, yeah, uh, even something like the the awakening. I've been I'm sure anyone who lived in the south of England, anywhere near a quarry, would have probably seen a bit of Doctor Who filming. Uh, absolutely, on. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or a village. They they used heavily used villages, and I really yeah. love that. And I kind of miss that with with the the the, the modern Who I I really like. But they went back to it a bit on series five, didn't they? With they, um, Amy and Rory's they did, home with, village with Led, Led Ledworth. Ledworth. Yeah. Um, but it's still. It's still obviously Wales, and <laughs> Wales is the new south of England, yeah. which is completely understandable. Mm-hmm. Understandable, but it doesn't quite connect with what I remember Doctor no. Who. See, it's almost like the X Files being filmed around Vancouver, pretending yes. to be different bits yeah. in America. Well, they did it with the TV movie, didn't they? They did it with the TV movie. So you get the United States of Vancouver <laughs> yeah. and San Francisco is Vancouver yeah. and the forests around it which made the X-Files but mm. and when they moved it to America it didn't quite seem like the X-Files no, because no. it wasn't like Vancouver um, so I, that's my feeling of 70s Doctor Who um, the other interesting thing about season 7 is the amount of the amount of times the Doctor changes out of his costume I was mm-hmm. thinking if you watch it in all the other Pertwee stories he's got this sort of base level frilled shirt cape yeah but season 7 the doctor stops being the doctor for a lot of it he, he doesn't wear this costume hmm. any opportunity to get into a t-shirt yeah. or an overall or yeah. a potholing suit space suit or a space suit or a hospital gown hmm. or completely naked <laughs> in yeah. one notorious scene then John Pertwee would do it and I don't I don't quite know what that says about it but but it really changes I mean the character of the doctor changes in that season and it's unlike anything and Patrick Troughton was one for disguises as well wasn't he he's one for disguises but these aren't these aren't disguises these are are sort of practical outfits Mm. he's wearing Mm. Patrick Troughton if he went potholing he would go potholing dressed as Patrick Troughton if he goes to a cold place he wears the big fur coat but that's still a sort of Patrick Troughton that's not a really practical thing I think reading I think it was on the info text on the Silurians um they were talking about there's a bit of a dispute between the wardrobe people mm. and Caroline John 
because of the yeah. potholing. Yes. She, she felt she should be in a, a boiler suit like the others, and they yeah. said, no, you need to be in heels and a yes. miniskirt, which yeah. you can kind of see her point. And did she, she won with that? Didn't, yes. Didn't Pertwee step in or something yes. and say, actually, yes, this is completely ridiculous. She mm. should be wearing a boiler yeah. suit because she's going potholing. So I wonder, I mean, there's a sort of practicality yeah. around that season, which says this isn't Doctor Who as we mm. know it, mm. but it's also not Doctor Who as... Do you remember it? If Tom Baker goes potholing, yeah. which he effectively did in remember, uh, Revenge, Revenge of the Cybermen, yeah. he's dressed as Tom Baker. In Wookiee Hole. You can't imagine Tom Baker dressed. No, no. In, I mean, he does change his, he changes his outfit, but mm. it's always a change of outfit. It's yeah. not a kind of a, it's not kind of a putting a t-shirt. Not a practical move. No. Whereas, whereas that's, a, that's something that John Pertwee sets, mm. sets into, he gives his doctor this kind of, this kind of, that's the real earthbound quality of the yeah. season which is probably a conclusion the real earthbound quality of the season is how the Doctor changes yeah. and that how he changes over the season mm-hmm. and how John Pertwee plays the Doctor as being not so much an eccentric but actually as John Pertwee as, yeah. as a sort of human being and that really sets the tone a lot for the, the cast I mean Tom Baker yeah. bless him yeah. plays Tom Baker he plays Tom Baker yeah um but, but Tom Baker had the saving grace of being a trained classical actor. And I think for, for an and actor... And just ever so slightly bonkers as well. And slightly bonkers, yeah. yeah. He, does, he, does, he does lose it when he gets <laughs> self-indulgent. But he's yeah. never, he, never, he never becomes unbelievable, I think. Mm. I've never seen every Tom Baker story you can watch because Tom Baker's in it. Yeah, as a Meg, child, he's Meg just Loss, incredible. Meg Loss is probably the best example of it. It's at a time when... Tom Baker was at his at his most he's starting to be a little bit morbid yeah but but you see him you watch him playing Megloss and mm. you watch him playing the Doctor and you realise how good an actor he yeah. is because he's genuinely sinister playing mm. Megloss uh, but he's the Doctor when he's playing the Doctor and yeah. you can start to see that actually he is an actor yeah. he's not just Tom Baker playing Tom Baker he's Tom play, Baker playing the Doctor but he's just forgotten sometimes yeah. what the distinction is between mm. the two and particularly now, he doesn't know what the... T- I mean, he's famously recently said he wasn't successful really after he left Doctor Who because he was aware that people wanted him to play characters as the Doctor. Yeah. So he plays Macbeth on stage <laughs> as the Doctor. Yeah. And that doesn't work with Macbeth, no, but that's no. what the audience wants yes. to see. He plays Sherlock Holmes mm. as the Doctor playing Sherlock Holmes. Mm. So he kind of loses his identity yeah. over the seven years. Mm. Um but I think to play a doc- to play the doctor, you need to be either a stage actor or theatrically trained, mm. or you need to be a genuine eccentric. Tom Baker had both. Yeah. John Pertwee was a genuine eccentric, mm-hmm. but had no very little acting training. Yeah. Troughton was a stage actor, but probably wasn't. I don't think was eccentric in his own life. Mm. He was a little bit reserved and private. Yeah. Yeah, I give you that. And the same possibly with with Hartnell. I think. I mean, he was a little bit. Racist. Yes, and yeah, that, that has gone on record. Yeah. Allegedly a little bit racist. So he's a bit of an eccentric, but he's of his time. And he had his illness problems as well, and which you can't yeah, really... You um, can't, yeah. No. Um, Peter Davison wasn't eccentric, mm. but he was... A tele- I think with Peter Davison moved towards more of a sort of television actor. Yes. Actor phase, mm. possibly. And now with David Tennant, again, classically trained... Mm. 
a little bit. I mean, he's a Doctor Who fan, so he's naturally an eccentric. Yeah. And he's saying the sense. Yeah. What is a Doctor Who fan if not if not you know massively? I mean, we are we are we are if we're being honest, sort of all weirdos. In a sense, yeah, to one degree or another, yeah. Com- have to combative. Agree on that. But we're mostly very intelligent weirdos because hmm. Doctor Who, you know, breeds. I mean, we're not Star Trek fans. Oh, Doctor Who, Doctor Who breeds intelligence effectively because it's a literate series. It's, yeah. it's it relies on on reading. It relies on on you know knowing things like things about Dickens and Shakespeare. Yeah. There's a there's a reason why so many fans are academics, hmm. and it's because because we're really clever. We haven't been necessarily been made clever by Doctor Who. We're attracted to Doctor Who because we recognise the cleverness yeah. in the series. Um, that's that's what that's my excuse. <laughs> so David Tennant is naturally an eccentric because he's a Doctor Who fan, but he's also very clearly very intelligent. Yes. Um, and Eccleston again is is a theatrically trained mm. Matt Smith. Who knows? I mean, he's a sort of a new, un untried kind of fresh face yeah but you'd assume he's going to go on to you'd think to, so wouldn't you if not film then some major television roles because yeah. he's got the face of a, a television lead he's yeah. got the face that you remember I mm. think <laughs> um, so yeah I think that's what you need and Pertwee Pertwee wasn't classically trained but Pertwee wisely chose not to act the part of Doctor Who mm-hmm. he chose to be the part of Doctor Who and the, he chose to to be himself in the part, um, which is why he relied so heavily on his the relationship with his companions, mm-hmm. both on and off screen. Yeah, the relationship with units. He relied on Nick Courtney being mates with with him. He yeah. relied on the close knit, close knit production team and the close knit cast. Yeah, coming out on screen, and I think that's the attraction of the Pertwee era, and also its downfall ultimately because. Mm-hmm. There's only one way you can go with that, and that's yeah. the fracturing of yeah. this, this this family. As soon as one person leaves or dies, Roger Delgado dies. Yeah. Katie Manning that leaves. That was a huge blow, wasn't it, for Pertwee? A huge blow for friends. Pertwee. Um, I can't remember which story they're filming when they find it out, but there's a sort of prurient mm. interest in trying to yeah. sort of see yeah. if you can see the change in mm. in the way Pertwee treats the series. But that final Pertwee season, yeah, he's obviously quite his depression sort of comes across it's yeah. like Baker's but it's a much more personal thing with yeah. Pert where you can see that he's losing his family slowly yeah. bit by bit and he gets on with Liz Layden but it's not it's, not the same. it's never the same no. after Joe Grant and Roger Delgado mm, mm. leave the series um, and then and then you start losing the unit stories they start easing back from the unit stories yeah. So I think I think that period of Doctor Who is very much tied in with how Tom Baker feels mm. and how happy Tom Baker is. Yeah, yeah. Which is possibly why some people don't like that. So, mm. I mean, you're also a Pertwee fan. Is that yeah? Um, I mean, there's things to like. I I can watch, I can watch a Doctor Who that I don't particularly care that much for. I can still find things to like in it. Yeah, sure. But if I had a choice of watching a Pertwee or Tom Baker, I'd watch a Tom Baker every time. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think. I think in terms of consistency, that it's hard to beat. The first three Tom Baker seasons mm-hmm. are the most amazing 
period of Doctor. I think the the golden age of Doctor Who isn't the nineteen sixties. Mm. There's the the golden age of Daleks is the nineteen sixties. The golden yeah. age of Doctor Who is from nineteen seventy until about nineteen seventy seven. Yeah. Nineteen seventy eight. That's mm-hmm. when you really hit a kind of consistency. Yeah. You got the Barry Letts consistency, the Philip Hinchcliffe consistency. Mm. And that's when it was really Yeah, huge. At its at its most popular. Yeah. And at at its most influential and at its most powerful. Um, and it's only now we're starting to feel that consistency again. Mm. Um, but we're we're all we're all kind of too paranoid to appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. To be honest, I mean, Doctor yeah. massively successful, but it's only every, looking back that you can every news news item, every forum online, yeah. Twitter is just a mess of people going. They're, they're going to cancel it. They're going to cancel it when they've just delayed a series yeah, or yeah. they haven't filmed something. Yeah, oh my it. God, they're going to cancel it because we can remember the 1980s yes. when they cancelled it yes. and we know what it, what it felt like. And in the end, it, was, it was, wasn't a bad thing, but they cancelled it. Mm. In a sense, it was getting good. But because now we're getting... Because now we're getting a yeah. resurgence. You have to have this reboot in place yeah. to make it good again. It needed a rest. It needed a rest. And it will rest again, no yeah, doubt. Yeah, I'm sure. But... As, as Russell T. Davis has been hinting or hinted, it's now because it's come back successfully, mm. it's become like something like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And you can't, you can't imagine them cancelling, you can't imagine them cancelling Sherlock Holmes. No. That whole concept just sort of doesn't work no, no, culturally no. or, or no. sort of mentally because Sherlock it's Holmes part is... part of the culture. Sherlock Holmes is a myth. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a, an ongoing storyline. Mm. It's not a, a plot or a narrative. It's yeah. not, it's not a set of texts. I mean, there's canon, but it's not mm. a set of texts. He's a myth. Yes. So there's always going to be either sort of low-key stories being written about mm-hmm. him, like we had in the 90s for Doctor Who. Yeah. Or there's going to be Sherlock, big whiz-bang mm-hmm. things. Or there's going to be an American version of Sherlock, whiz-bang yeah. things. Or there's going to be Robert Downey Jr. films. Mm-hmm. And those will fade away, but then in 10 years' time, there'll be another whiz bang film and yeah. another TV series mm-hmm. and it's constantly going to be reinterpreted and that's what Doctor Who because it's come back successfully that's what Doctor Who's going to be yeah. it's, it's going to be you can't the idea of them cancelling Doctor Who is almost unthinkable mm. thinkable now because mm. the BBC will stop Doctor Who at some point yeah. but they'll remember well Russell T Davis brought it back and it, it ended up with 12 million viewers watching Kylie Minogue mm. saving Starship Titanic <laughs> yeah we can get there again if yes. we just have the right author yes. and the right amount of money and the right actor. Mm. We could get there again. Let's try again. Yeah. And they're never going to get to that stage where it might never come back yeah. again. So that's that's the kind of... And that's kind of almost what seventies that 1970s series did. Yeah. Because it, it laid, paved, laid the groundwork for Pertwee to recapture the viewers. Yeah. So by the time the Three Doctors or thereabouts or Day of the Daleks, mm-hmm. you can't imagine them cancelling it. No. You can't. That doesn't happen. And it takes another 20 years, or no, not 20, but 10, 10 15 years yeah. before actually they do yeah. cancel it. Um, but that's, that's a slow sort of, a slow kind of, during the 80s, it slowly kind of doesn't, died a death. It died a death, but it, it kind of didn't keep up. I think that's mm. that's the problem. It was it was I think done it got as a so soap consumed opera. in its own continuity in a way that it just po- possibly yeah, but also it just it just wasn't loved at the BBC. Mm. It just went through a phase of not being loved, 
Um, and John Nathan Turner needed to, he wanted to leave. Yeah. He needed to leave, but they wouldn't let him leave because no. they couldn't find anybody to replace him. Wasn't there a story, I forget which season it was now, where he had said, right, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm definitely going. Mm. And then with hardly any time left to go, they suddenly say, well, we haven't got anyone else. You're going to have yeah, to do the next yeah. series. Well, I think that was, um, that was most of the season. <laughs> yeah. I think at the end of each season, yeah. he'd say, that's it, I'm yeah. leaving, I can't do another season. Mm. And they make him an offer he can't refuse. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's not... I don't think John Nathan Turner killed Doctor Who. The massive headlines. Mm. John Nathan Turner didn't kill Doctor Who. The length of time Doctor Who went along... After Star Wars mm, and yeah. and before Star Trek: The Next Generation, that's what killed Doctor yeah. Who. It was made as a soap opera, and yeah. a time when people weren't making drama with mm, soap operas mm. anymore. It was it it needed to have a break during the nineties so that people could remember how to make science fiction on television. Mm. It needed CGI to reach a certain level. Yeah. It needed uh, funding to build up. It needed yeah. the DVD sales to start taking off for people to suddenly realise, well, this is a really good cash cow yeah. in America mm. or Canada yeah. and co-fund it with, with Britain. So, so yeah, yeah I'm, it was terrible at the time and I was mortified when, when it went away. But we wouldn't have had the 1990s. Doctor in the 1990s? Um, yeah. You're a, a New Adventures fan? Uh, I've read one or two of the books. Okay. Um, I listened to The Odd Big Finish. Not not averse to that, but um, I've, I've sort of given up a little, keeping keeping up a little bit, um, because uh, there's too much out there. Mm. I can't afford to buy Big Finish. No, I bought. Um, you see behind you, I've kind of cherry picked to um, the right. I've cherry picked what I've heard of the good Big Finish yeah, ones. Yeah. So um, so yeah, some of the the Rob Sherman, uh, Joseph Lister, mm-hmm. Lister ones. But I can't, I can't keep up with no. all the different Doctor Who's. No, so much of it. But I read a fair amount of new adventures, mm. but didn't really understand them at the time, so mm. I've been trying to reread some of yeah. them. And they were very influential. Some of yeah. them were very powerful. Human nature mm. is still being sort of in transit. The Ben Aronovich stuff yeah. was quite powerful. Mm. So the 90s was quite... It was all right, but the, the Doctor Who magazine in the 1990s mm. was one of the best... The best TV tie-in magazines. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, um, it's it's, it hasn't got downhill since, but it's it's trying to reach a, a younger audience. Yeah. But in the nineties, it was growing up with mm-hmm. Doctor. There were no new fans coming in, so Doctor Who fans were getting into their late teens, twenties. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's a case for that audience. You had argu- articles in the Doctor Who magazine about Roland Barthes, about structuralism, mm. about. People writing for the magazine were starting to do undergraduate English degrees mm-hmm. just at the time I was doing my undergraduate English degree. Yeah. And I was suddenly reading, it's really like Harry Potter, it. I was reading the Doctor Who magazine that was sort of telling me about things in my life yeah. at the time. Yeah. So the Doctor Who magazine in the 1990s was mm-hmm. really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, not so powerful for me now. It's more uh, Ben Cook um, basically getting in with. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> getting, in, getting in with people well <laughs> kind of but I just couldn't do what he does mm. but being unrelentingly positive about it it's tied yeah. in so closely yes. to, to the series it has to be positive about yeah. everything and in contrast it has to be slightly negative about old Doctor Who as mm. well mm. because that's all it can criticise it can't criticise 
I'm waiting for the article. Stephen Moffat's a bit better than Russell T. Davis was about criticising his own stuff. Yeah. But I'm waiting for the interview with Russell T. Davis where he finally gives, tells us what he really thinks about how successful certain stories were. Because yeah. there were good stories, but yeah. there were stories that didn't work. Yes. And there were bad stories. There have mm. been bad stories mm. in, in the reboot. But it's almost like we're not allowed to think that there yeah. have been bad stories because yeah. we're being told that... Everything's even, great. I mean, admittedly, even the bad stories are better than... Yeah. There hasn't been a story yeah. of badness equivalent to some of the stories... Hmm. or un- uneven quality as to some of the stories yeah. before yeah. but that's, you can't say that it's been a kind of an unbroken joyride through the <laughs> through the grassy fields and sweet smelling meadows of, <laughs> of perfection it's, you know there have been mistakes they've made I think yeah, um, yeah. so I've, in preparation for this obviously I'm guessing you've been watching some Doctor Who DVDs and jenning up on it I always ask this when we have guests on right? Is there anything else that you've enjoyed more recently? Um, doesn't necessarily have to be Doctor Who related, or uh, there is. Um, in, well, in terms of Doctor Who, um, I haven't watched that much recently. I go through phases. Um, I watched. I've I've decided to start an annual tradition of watching because my wife's a Catholic, so mm-hmm. she goes to midnight mass, right. and, I, and I don't. So I decided to start an annual tradition of watching a really good Doctor Who story on Christmas Eve and I watched that Pyramids of Mars for the first time oh, all sweet. the way through yeah. and as I say I watched uh, the war games so I'm into mm-hmm. sort of watching things that I watched too many times as a child I got yeah. Pyramids of Mars was the first video I got in 1988 mm-hmm. and I watched it to death yeah. but re-watching it now after a break I'm yeah. starting to see new things in it yeah. again with the war games mm-hmm. I'm going to try Death, death to the Daleks again because I watched that to death oh, yeah. to death um, <laughs> Robots of Death yeah. to Death um, I'll watch that again um, but I go through sort of phases of watching mm. sort of cycles of 80s yeah. I watched when I'm watching season 7 I, I tend to start with Seeds of uh, Spearhead from Space and I tend to then try and watch it all the way through I yeah. get propelled to the next mm-hmm. story which is interesting yeah um, Beyond Doctor Who, I've just watched Game of Thrones. I'm behind on Game oh, of Thrones. I haven't seen that yet, but everyone I know is raving about it on the internet. It's very good. Mm. Uh, unnecessary nudity. That's mm. the only... Cri- I'm not a prude, mm. but I'm, I'm, I didn't like Torchwood for the same reason. Yeah, why it's why like put swear words and nudity yeah. when all you're trying to do is just make it look adult? Yeah. It can be adult just through the complexity of the storyline yeah. yeah. or the sophistication of the storyline. Mm-hmm. You don't need swearing and you do just to make it something like the wire you do need swearing because yeah. you're you're telling a story about a particular yeah. area so you're telling us if you have drug, you to make it drug dealers going gosh yeah. <laughs> gosh <laughs> wouldn't have quite the same ring to it like to buy some drugs <laughs> it wouldn't quite work so you have to have the swearing yeah. Game of Thrones it's a fantasy mm. I mean uh, the swearing I don't mind but the nudity it's just I mean the nudity I don't mind it's very <laughs> it's very pleasant at times yeah. I mean, I'm not complaining but I just thought it was distracting from the story. But yeah. It is very good. Mm. Um, what else have I been watching? The the usual things. I really liked Stephen Moffat's Jekyll. Mm-hmm. I've watched that, uh, rewatched that recently, um, and Sherlock, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's almost you're, you're almost duty bound as a Doctor Who fan <laughs> to also be a fan of Sherlock. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's a, it's a really good time to be a Doctor Who fan because. Because everybody's Doctor Who fan. Yeah, that's great. At the, at the moment. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah. I recently went to down to Plymouth to see they were doing a, a tour, and it's the original radio cast of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, yeah, I saw uh, that. Doing I a live show, and it's amazing. Is that it's good? Really good, yeah. Right. Great fun. Okay, I reread Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the book, mm-hmm. and I did prefer it. From I didn't used to like it. Mm. Um, Douglas Adams, I've I've always been a fan of the idea of Douglas Adams, <laughs> but I love Dirk Gently. Yeah. As a novel, and I love Tea Time, Long Dark Tea Time with the Soul. Yeah. Sadly, Dirk Gently's been cancelled, hasn't it? Dirk Gently's been cancelled, which is which is sad. I did quite. I think if they made a second series, they would have made it stronger. I think they mm. were developing it as they went along. Yeah. Um, I don't think it ever quite found its feet. I can mm. see. I mean, I can see why it's cancelled because they're not making drama. Yeah. anymore um, for BBC4 mm. but I can see why it was cancelled it wasn't it hadn't quite got there it wasn't a mainstream programme but I think there were a lot of people who liked it there were a lot of people yeah um, it wasn't mainstream a vocal minority shall we say there were, yes yeah but I can't see it didn't have a consistency so I can see how mm. you liked one episode yeah. but then the next episode was mm. completely different Yeah. so to say I really liked the series. Yeah, is an unusual thing mm. for me to think about, mm. and I think if they'd have gone on, it had a real potential to be more consistent. Yeah, and then sort of a, it was a sort of small time eccentric series. Yeah, which which we really need. We actually mm-hmm. need. I mean, being human, yeah. being human, I've lost interest in slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had that kind of small time eccentricity yeah. to start with. Which Doctor Who doesn't have anymore. That's mm. what we're missing in Doctor mm. Who, but we've got another in other series. We've got these kind of these extra BBC channels where they're making stuff that Doctor Who used to feel a bit like. Yeah, um, and also uh, the fades as well, which they cancelled mm. after the series, which yeah. I didn't really get into. But mm. but I could see. I could, I'm now starting to watch the first episodes of things, and I think that's got potential. Yeah. And I just don't I don't watch <laughs> the rest of them, so I can kind of. There's too much, There's not so enough much time in the day yeah. to, to sort of keep up with these different mm. things. Mm. Um, but a lot coming from America as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and HBO. Yeah. Really powerful stuff coming from HBO and Showtime as well. Mm-hmm. Homeland, I really liked. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of stuff out there. It's quite a good time for television, mm. I think, um, if, they can, if they can survive the, cu- the funding cuts. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. That's all right. That's it's okay. been a real pleasure. That's no problem. And if it hasn't yes. been too much of a traumatic experience, you may no. possibly have you back again. Sometime. Yes, yeah. No, it's been good fun. I, I don't often get to talk about Doctor Who in such a huge, complex amount um, <laughs> because normally it's my mate and I and we just get into arguments about, yeah. you know, just things and we don't <laughs> talk to one another for hours. Yeah. And then. So, yeah, it's been quite interesting. So that wraps up another show. Thanks again to Matt for appearing on the programme. And if you want to hear a bit more Doctor Who-based chat, then you can check out the Blue Box podcast, which is available through iTunes and also starburstmagazine.com. So until next time, thanks for listening.